1: Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I just now had the great pleasure of talking with Shireen Hamdi about her book that just came out with University of California Press in 2012, Our Bodies Belong to God, Organ Transplants, Islam, and the Struggle for Human Dignity in Egypt. Now, this is an absolutely fascinating book, and it's one that speaks to um, not just medical anthropology, where it most obviously fits, but also issues of how to understand the complexities and sort of polyvocal nature and richness of Islam in contemporary Egyptian society, how to understand bodies in local context, what that means, um, and how to sort of think about that and think with that problem without overgeneralizing or totalizing um, local cultures, right? It's, It's just an incredibly fascinating book, and it's also one that's extraordinarily important. I think listeners should absolutely read it. I highly recommend it. I'll be assigning it all over the place um, when I'm teaching, and I hope you enjoy uh, listening to our conversation. It was a real great pleasure to talk with Shireen, and she's got some fascinating things to say. Hi, Shireen. Hi. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Shireen Hamdi about her new book, her really wonderful new book, Our Bodies Belong to God, Organ Transplants, Islam, and the Struggle for Human Dignity in Egypt. And that just came out this year, 2012, with the University of California Press. Now, Shireen, thank you so much for making time to talk with us today. This is a really exciting book. I can already imagine assigning it in any number of classes in body history, STS, history of medicine. Um, And it's really a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you about it today.
0: Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: Oh, it's great. That's great for me, too. Um, so this is your first book. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, to sort of get us started, what brought you to this topic in particular? What brought you to the topic of organ transplantation um, as, a, as a dissertation topic, right?
0: Right. Um, so I was always really interested in medicine. My undergraduate was in human biology, and um, and so medicine and medical anthropology is what brought me to anthropology as a graduate student. And so I knew I wanted to do something related to medicine and health and Islamic authority, but I wasn't sure what. And even when I think back to my dissertation proposal, it was quite broad. It was on you know a number of different biotechnologies that I had anticipated working on. But uh, when I was in the field, I went to Egypt before I started my field work for the uh, Center for Arab Studies Abroad, which is an intensive Arabic learning program. And when I was there, I realized how huge a debate organ transplants was. And, you know, just people on the streets talk about it. Everybody knew about it. Uh, Everybody had an opinion. And that's what really drew me into the topic. I thought, well, this seems like it would be a really interesting lens through which I could look at a number of different processes and debates that are going on in Egyptian society more widely.
1: That's great. A number of people um, I know through um, Arabic language study have have actually said that uh, participation in the CASA program was fundamental for shaping their graduate work. So it sounds like a great program. Mm Okay. So can you talk about the transitions were there any or what was the process like going from this topic and this material as a dissertation and then transforming it into a manuscript were there any sort of major transformations did the structure largely stay the same were there any particularly um challenging or um uh, sort of exciting parts of that process for you
0: yeah, well, you know, the material is really rich. As as you know, I just had so much data to work from so many stories and narratives from patients and physicians and doctors and Islamic scholars. So it just took so long for me to figure out what was the narrative and what was the analysis that I wanted to bring to this. Um, and so it was it took, you know, I, my dissertation, I finished in 2006. So it took six years to see the book come out of it. And I think I just completely wrote it from scratch. Um, the ethnography is, you know, more or less the same, except for the the stuff that I added, I went back and I did more key interviews with some of the pioneering figures and transplant to add that historical dimension. And also, um, because there were things that were changing on the ground constantly in Egypt that I had to add from the other end of the, of the time frame. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, I would say that I added the analysis, the analytical framework. I thought, who are the audiences that I want to address? And I wanted to talk about science and religion. I wanted to make a major intervention in how we think about bioethics. And I also wanted to say something about religion in public discourse, and particularly about Islam within the confines of the modern nation state.
1: And one of the major um, arguments that it seems like you're making, you know, Sort of following up this point of um, the book actually making substantial contributions to the field of bioethics and to STS, I think, as well, and medical anthropology, um, early on in the book, you present this idea of um, a bioethics rebound as something that you want to present um, as a way to situate this case study within broader narratives and broader, um, perhaps, theoretical frameworks of bioethics discourse, but also medical anthropology and STS. Can you talk a little bit about that concept of a bioethics rebound, um, what it means for you and why that was so important for you in framing this um, case study?
0: Yeah, so I'm playing with the word of, of rebound. So on the one hand, I want bioethics to bounce back from a failed relationship with the social sciences So rebound in that sense. And also in the sense of unbinding and rebinding, like you would the worn-out pages of an old book. And the idea is that bioethics as a discipline, I mean, it actually has quite a, a short recent history in, in America, and it and it um, became its own field in tandem with the field of organ transplantation. That's when bioethicists were really called to the table to say, you know, can we actually take organs from living healthy donors? How can we allocate them? How can we distribute? What does it mean when we're redefining life and death? And, um, although it had its roots in, in, in patient, you know, kind of giving a voice to, to the ethical dilemmas that patients would face, it very soon became this almost legal um, arm of the institution of biomedicine and more kind of uh, way to perpetuate biomedicine as it was and to really transform it. And so social scientists and particularly anthropologists have been really critical of bioethics and bioethicists for being myopic and its universalisms, for assuming that that everybody has the same sort of notions of autonomy or beneficence or non-malfeasance or justice. And um, I I didn't want to lose bioethics. I didn't want to say bioethics or even ethical questions should be marginal. And instead, we should look at political economic structures and about power relations. I wanted to say, well, let's... Integrate these ethical concerns with the political economics. So let's unbind bioethics from its narrow domain and rebind it with these larger questions about um, about politics and the economy that are happening more or less visibly in particular locations. So in Egypt, it's very visible how the political and economic structures impact. But it, it's that it's a case that enables us to see how political economic processes work less visibly in other places
1: right. and for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book and I hope um I hope anyone listening right now will because as um Shireen has already said it's an extraordinarily rich um study and I'll I'll echo that you're very careful in the book to not just localize this context but also to make very clear that um at least from my perspective as a reader these different factors, social factors, political factors, religious factors, ethical factors, don't look one way just because you're looking at one particular context. So you're not making any claims here, as far as I see, to be um, totalizing or generalizing Egypt. In fact, you're very careful in here to be very um, sort of to get to, present a very rich picture of the simultaneous contradictory and non-contradictory ways that these issues are fleshed out at the level of individual and different local communities within Egypt as a whole.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So I didn't want to say, you know, we, we think organ transplantation looks this way. Let me show you the Egyptian case or let me show you the Muslim case. I wanted to say... You know, here's a methodological or a theoretical way that we can approach this topic and open it up in a way that makes cultural difference. It, it shows the um, bluntness of that tool of cultural difference because it's not adequate enough to really grapple with some of these complexities about how different people are figuring out what makes sense to them to improve their lives. And we, and we realize that some of the things that we take for granted and that we assume don't apply to everybody. Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. Now sort of to this is a wonderful way to get us into the actual sort of body of the book itself. And before we get into um, these particular case studies um, that you present us with in the book and the sort of meat and potatoes of the content, um, I want to ask you just a couple of questions about the book as a book and the book as sort of the structure of the book and the decisions that you made to frame it the way you did, which are really fascinating. Um, Now, you you bring up very early in the book um, the role of photography and the role of photographs in the story, and each chapter opens with um, kind of a, a photograph that is almost a set piece. For the story to come, can you say a little bit about um, how you thought about the role of photographs and photography in this work? And I know for a lot of contemporary anthropology and ethnography work that I've read, the sort of authors tend to be very thoughtful, as you are, I think, in here, about um, how to position photographs with respect in relation to and with respect to the rest of the, the content of the study.
0: I, I think it was more following the lead of my interlocutors themselves in the field. They would—they you know, were so funny. Sometimes they would pose for the camera in these really funny ways. And I mean, I remember this one photo that I actually did not include in the book, but it, it's of a janitor um, picking up a stethoscope and pretending to examine a dialysis patient and posing in that way. So it was hilarious to us in the field because we all knew that he was the janitor and not the attending physician. It wouldn't really <laughs> be translated in the book. But just the way that I think the what the photographs capture more than the people themselves is their relationship with me, with the study. They're 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 posing, they're shaping the image. They're they're, you know, they're narrating in some way in the way that they pose for the camera. And I thought that was just another way to bring in their input yeah. or, or at least the interaction between my input and theirs. Okay.
1: And the, the um, one of the other really interesting things about the book it as a book is that you're very careful to frame the account um, as a whole. Um, in particular, in the uh, use in, in your use of prefatory and concluding paratexts, in terms of your own experience um, in conducting this research, in telling this story, um, in experiencing um, the sort of material that you did in order to construct this account, the preface, in fact, opens up with an account of you blacking out at a rural hospital in Tanta, which is one of the um, localities of the study in 2003. Um, can you talk about that a little bit as a way of introducing um, the story for listeners as as you introduce it in the book. Yeah.
0: Um, so I was, it was sort of early on in the field work and it was very, very hot. And this uh, hospital was not air conditioned. And I don't know. I, I think I guess it was the heat. I actually don't have an explanation for why I lost consciousness. But I mean, what struck me was that the the concern that the patients had for me, like you know, in retrospect, I I was thank God I'm very uh, healthy uh, compared to patients in organ failure. And you know, in retrospect, I think, oh my gosh, I, I'm so embarrassed that I act like really panicky and spoiled. And all it was was a little fainting spell. But but you know, and they're the one were really suffering but they were so concerned and the nurses put me on one of the beds and wheeled me in between these patients whose lives I had been following and one of the patients gave me her mango juice and told me it would bring my sugar up and so it was one of those moments where it seemed as if in an instance there was like this really strong bond between us and but in the way that I talk about in the book was to just actually talk about how fragile those bonds were because they were so easily ruptured by uh, Egyptian officials barring my access to public hospitals. I got into very big trouble talking about photographs um, for capturing that one image of the cement factory that's polluting on agricultural land. And so there was a lot of difficulty. Um, There was a lot of boundaries position between me and the people I was trying to, to talk to, because at this, I mean, this is, you know, the, obviously before, um, before the Egyptian revolution, before Mubarak was toppled or whatever you want to call it, uh, people were really scared to approach the poor, the disenfranchised. The assumption was if you were to tap into these very subjugated, very marginalized, People and ask them questions. They were going to be angry, and you were going to sort of open up this explosion. And I, you know, so so there are just so many doors closed in my face. And I think that moment of kind of blacking out and being with the patients was one of those instances where it seemed like we were all together
1: now the the book um itself so for for listeners just to um give a sort of basic general summary um the book presents an account of transplanting body parts in egypt and focuses on three major key there are three major body parts or types of parts that are um, engaged in these issues. There are a number of puzzles, right? So you're raising a bunch of puzzles at the beginning about its practice and history. And we'll sort of get through um, many of those puzzles as we look through the chapters individually. Um, But they sort of, one of the things that you um, bring up as we're talking right now about your own experience sort of doing this research, you later in the book, you mentioned that you didn't, Talk with any individuals who had sold organs, right? Mm-hmm. And so th- this seems to me that this is related to these larger issues you just talked about about sort of you know some doors being slammed in your face in the course yes. of this research and others being um, opened perhaps unexpectedly. The book, can you talk about the research process of this book? And and I know I say that it's a very broad question because, again, for listeners, um, you're bringing to bear here an amazing range of materials to tell this story. Uh, Interviews with all kinds of people, newspapers, um, television shows, religious sermons, sitting in on classroom discussions, participant observation at hospitals and clinics, archives of fatwas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what What was this research process like for you? And by that, I mean... Um, anything that you want to say that stands out as particularly memorable, particularly difficult, particularly exciting in this long process?
0: Well, it was very, very, very difficult. I will say that. And um, I remember I have this colleague who, who had written a paper on organ transplant in Egypt based on newspaper accounts. And the premise of the article that he wrote was that, well, since our access to actual field work in hospitals is barred, you know, one has to rely on things like newspapers. And it was just kind of taken for granted that it would be impossible or next to impossible. And I, I do want to emphasize that because I think sometimes as graduate students, we have no idea what we're getting ourselves into. You know, we'll read one medical ethnography in one place and say, oh, well, I want to do that in, in such and such place and not really realize the, um, the difficulties in terms of access. I remember people telling me in Egypt, you'll never, ever be able to get access to hospitals, especially because you're a foreigner. And then other people say, you will never, ever be able to get access, especially because you're Egyptian. So I, <laughs> I don't even know if being sometimes Egyptian and sometimes foreign, depending on how people saw me, was a help or a hindrance. In the end, I just think it was persistence. Um, but I, I will just say that if I had, you know, in the first five or six months, just had so many doors slammed in my face. If I had, if I didn't have the funding that I had that let me stay as long as I did until some doors started to open for me, I think I probably would have had to switch topics. But I mean, the main um, response that I would get was something along the lines of, um, you cannot interview poor patients. They are not, they are not uh, people that you can talk to. They have nothing to tell you. They have no information. If you write down anything that they say, it will be false. like like the, the idea of writing down what a poor, uneducated person says and then calling that knowledge was like very disconcerting. But then more than that was this idea of, of political explosion that, you know what are you, what are you hoping to gain? You're
1: so, Shireen, you, um, in the book, you conducted fieldwork primarily in three areas, Cairo, Mansoura, and Tanta, with follow-up visits um, after the primary period of research. Can you say a little bit about why you chose those particular areas and what each of those areas allowed you to explore in the course of your research?
0: Yeah, so Cairo is really the center of of everything in Egypt, of Islamic authority. It's where Al azhar and dar al Ifta are where the um, religious scholars convene, and it's also the medical center of Egypt, so people from all over the country will end up being um, referred to Cairo if, if it's something complicated. Uh, so it was nice to break away from Cairo to get more of an understanding of what was going on, and it just turns out that the early pioneer of transplant surgery in Egypt was a physician from Mansoura. And he built from the ground up, basically, um, a transplant center, a tertiary transplant center. And he kind of was competitively beat the the rival transplant team in Cairo to the finish line because they he wanted to um, do the very first transplant surgery in Egypt. So it happened in Mansura in 1976, and ever since then Mansoura was able because of the kind of the charismatic leadership of this one pioneering surgeon named Mohamed Runeim, um that 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 is where uh, all of the research, the best research, comes out of, of transplant surgery in Egypt, and where it's publicly funded, and they have the best results in terms of um, donor survival and, and graft survival. Mm-hmm. And then Tanta was the third site, and, and that um, didn't have anything to do with the transplant center. And that was very useful because there was kind of a distance from the high, almost explosive nature that transplantation had caused in Cairo. And, and most of that is because there's a very large, thriving black market in Cairo. And Tanta patients were able to sort of reflect on the benefits and costs of transplant a bit with a with a bit of distance from kind of the explosive nature of of the black market and and what that drew people into
1: okay thank you now, getting into the sort of um the first chapters of the book the The first chapters bring us in, in different ways, to issues of expertise and authority, which go on to play such important roles in the rest of this study. Now, one of the major um, questions that you start off telling us that you are sort of looking to resolve, or at least inform, is the issue that um, though all official religious scholars in Egypt declare organ donation to be permissible in Islam, patients and family members continue to object on religious grounds, right? So many insisting we can't donate that which quote, belongs to God. And this sort of elaboration of the popularization of this idea will become clearer in later chapters. Now, this sort of gets to a theme that's going to be really important in both um, of the first two chapters, certainly, which is the the importance of different realms of authority and the ways that they mutually, um, in some ways, mutually constitute each other and mutually inform each other. And that's in particular, um, the medical and religious realms of authority. Um, that play out here um, can you talk a little bit about um, about that about the sort of relationship in here especially when it um, um, pertains in the first chapter to kidney transplantation between um, what we might call medical and religious authority how in your experience in looking at um, kidney transplants and dialysis in particular at Mansura, did these two modes of authority um, inform or conflict with each other uh, for the people that you spoke with
0: Well, part of what I was grappling with is that there's such um, a strong narrative of religion and science clashing that we get from the West. And and a lot of historians of science and and religion have kind of debunked this or nuanced it or complicated how it is that we come to this narrative where science and religion clash. Um, and, and, And it's particularly... Problematic when when that narrative goes to other places of the world where there are actually very different relationship between religious and scientific modes of authority, and, and and so that was really hard to parse out in terms of the analysis from from what people would say because you would talk to physicians and sometimes they would say, well, of course I'm a very devout believer in God and that's what brought me to medicine, and um, you know some of the pioneering surgeons would talk about the the value of praying so that the surgery will go well and those those kinds of things um, but then there were people who didn't have a good explanation in their minds because they weren't the they weren't the anthropologists they weren't the ones going out and, and collecting lots of social scientific data so that they could analyze it so they, they they couldn't make sense of why is it that I'm a scientist and I and I love surgery and I love the idea of of moving one organ to the other and I such this amazing appreciation for human physiology and yet I can't reconcile that with this trouble in my heart something in my heart is telling me that there's something wrong with transplants and so all they would have to fall back on uh, is this notion that well maybe religiously there's something wrong with it even if scientifically it's okay and, that, and, and so people themselves would say well you know in our religion the body belongs to God therefore we can't transplant but that you know, as i as I show throughout the book, the logic of that statement can't take you very far because, well, then, why organ transplant? why Why isn't dialysis wrong? Why isn't all these other medical treatments that people are pursuing a problem? Why does the body belong to God come to trouble only particular medical treatments and And it takes me to a much larger story about the very difficult ways that people are weighing cost and benefit, and how the the very specific um, conditions under which kidney transplant came to be seen as a medically safe and efficacious procedure, um, those conditions can't or are not always met everywhere. And when they're not met, it doesn't seem like a safe or efficacious procedure. But people didn't really have that analytical framework with which to reckon with the, with the complex debate. So, so they would end up reifying this language of clash between religion and science.
1: Right. and for um listeners who haven't read the book one of the in really interesting um, aspects of this set of problems is that, as you tell us, contrary to what um, many readers might be familiar with in their experience, in for example, <clears throat> de- dealing with these issues or thinking about these issues in North America, there's no waiting list for kidneys in Egypt, right? There's no national program or national registry. And so, uh, can you talk a little bit about how patients who um, might be in the position to Either be told or to realize that an option for them is to have a kidney transplant. What's the process? What do you do as a patient um, when faced with that? Since there is no registry, there is no national program. um, Just to sort of talk uh, readers through um, why these issues come up in a particular way.
0: Right. So, so there's two things. One is that there was never a a program, a national program that was initiated that would. Control and um, come up with with some kind of list, and the other thing, and this is um, something that Egypt has in common with a lot of other countries that people have written about, like Mexico and Iran and India, is that there's such a large pool of people willing to sell their kidneys that the supply actually outweighs the demand. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there is <laughs> there is no shortage when you think about shortage. If if you think. Um, of the shortage of kidney and how that narrative is very strong in North America. That's because a lot of the kidneys that we rely on are cadaveric um, and there is no cadaveric procurement program in Egypt. So if a patient is in kidney failure, basically the, the onus is shifted to the patient and the patient's family to then come up with the kidney and it's up to the patient then to look in his or her family or to think about buying a kidney. And that has um, more recently been uh, criminalized in Egypt. It was never legal, but now it's specifically criminalized and um, pe- uh, you know the, the police are told to shut down hospitals where they see that's happening.
1: And to sort of to get us um, a little bit um, toward the end of the book now to sort of you know just to kind of jump ahead, you do have this wonderful chapter here that actually looks specifically at uh, in chapter seven um, the so called black market in kidneys and people 's various engagements with it, right so in this context where the vast majority of kidney transactions take place in the context of the sale. Of live donor kidneys, you actually um, spent some time at the Egyptian Medical Syndicate in downtown Cairo to try to understand how um, to a paperwork trail or how paperwork actually acts to create a sense of uh, legitimacy or regulation around this um, th- this way of transacting. Um, around the uh, the kidneys. Can you say a little bit about that? Because that's a particularly fascinating chapter and a really interesting um, context for fieldwork, I think.
0: Yeah, and that brings me to another way that this really transformed from dissertation to manuscript too and and how I changed in the course of doing this fieldwork is, you know, there's a lot of condemnation of um, selling kidneys in... North American bioethic circles, although that's there's more and more now um, question about how to regulate maybe uh, monetary compensation for donors. But particularly in medical anthropology, my colleague Nancy Shepherd Hughes has had a very strong voice and kind of outrage over the increasing commodification of bodies and body parts. And it was very difficult for me to come to and very surprising for me that I would come to the position where I now am, where I see actually the harms of criminalizing um, monetary transactions for kidneys. So, so to step back a little bit, in when I was doing the research, one of the puzzles I start with is that everybody, if you ask them, says, well, in principle, of course, it's wrong. You shouldn't pay someone to, to do something to heart hurt their body, to take out a healthy vital organ. And yet that was the majority of kidney transplants relied on living donors. And this was one of the sticking points for why for so long Egypt has been unable to come up with a functioning national organ transplant program is because the question was never resolved of how are we going to stop the um, poor people selling their organs. And really there wasn't very much incentive to want to stop it because that was the major source of organs. So part of what I came to is that when, you know, transplant, surgery as a field, no matter where you practice, is in this paradoxical position where it relies on the commodification of body parts, even or maybe especially in the places where it most adamantly condemns it. So I go into the, the medical syndicate where the Egyptian doctors take it upon themselves because the legislators haven't been able to come up with a program that would come up with a way for people to access kidneys that weren't dependent on selling. And so that put doctors in this vulnerable legal position because they could be now um, imprisoned for participating in a black market. <laughs> so doctors wanted to really protect themselves. And so they came up with these documents for patients to sign and they basically just, you know, imported them from Euro American settings um, where the seller and donor are the sign and in a piece of, uh, at the end of the paper, that they haven't um, had any kind of monetary exchange for it. And, and they would, <laughs> it just became this ritual practice that people would engage in, even when they knew that there was money that was exchanged. But part of what was happening there was um, a kind of a boundary work where people were saying, well, this kind of kidney transplant is okay, even if there's money transacted, and that kind is wrong. So the place where they were dividing the right and the wrong wasn't whether there was money exchange or not, but it was is this in a good hospital? Will anesthesia be used? Is this a reliable doctor? And the way that they were able to regulate that was by at least having some kind of documentation. And that's really what it was signaling, was that it was being performed in the right places, not, you know, underground. And so towards the end of my work, it was after two thousand six when the World Health Organization listed Cairo as one of the top organ trafficking hotspots of the globe that sort of just in response to international pressure, there is a crackdown on on black markets. And, and there you can just see on the ground that there's a negative effect because what it ends up doing is pushing um, transplantation underground. So it's in clinics that aren't licensed and with physicians that haven't been you know, trained adequately. You don't know what kind of anesthesia is being used. You don't know whether the donor is given any kind of best time to recuperate from the surgery. And we don't and we can't monitor the effects of them.
1: Mm -hmm. that's right and one of the really interesting things that comes out of this is that you also bring up um in the course of that chapter, and also running through in the discussions of the social and political context that's informing these decisions and debates that patients are engaging with and, and that doctors are engaging with, in the rest of the chapters, or many of the other chapters, the issue of um, the potential sort of orientalization of the question of a market in human okay. organs, right? The sort of the assumption right. that this black market is something that only you know, third world countries participate in, um, and It seems that a a number of the patients, certainly, that you spoke to were very self-conscious about um, the sort of relationship between how they thought of transplants, technology, transplant phenomena, um, and how they thought of U.S. militarization and intervention in the Middle East as it's playing out on, like, in the media at the same time. Did you find that to be particularly common?
0: Well, everything is politicized seems right. in the context of the Middle East. It's so easy to draw those those. Um mm-hmm. I just got a little message saying my bandwidth is bad. Did you get one?
1: No, I didn't.
0: Okay, sorry. I'll rewind. <laughs> um, so a lot of things are politicized in the Middle East. And that was one of the ways that you know, this this clash of civilization rhetoric, like the science versus religion rhetoric, is so overdetermined um, that it shapes how people talk and think about a lot of things. So when one of my interviews is with the Grand Mufti and and he's being asked, well, is this person who theoretically say we have a person and his or her organs are still functioning, will put this person on a life respirator so that we can harvest the organs the neurological functioning is gone um, but the body's still alive is that okay and he says well no are you asking me if if that person is alive or dead the person's obviously alive if if somebody goes into an ICU and shoots a patient like that with a gun that person would um, would be charged with murder right and so his explanation, and a lot of the physicians who were agitating against cadaveric procurement, was that the people in the West, these people who are also exploiting and colonizing and militarily intervening, so you know, so it's a very like sort of soft spot. The, 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 these are the same people who are redefining dying patients as already dead for their own lucrative ends, and. And my argument is, well, if you do the ethnography in North America, which is what Margaret Locke has done, Mm -hmm. you'll see that the physicians don't deny that that the brain-dead patients are biologically alive. They know that. And so the arguments that the Egyptian physicians are using against it actually come from Euro Medical, Euro and Anglo-American journals saying that. describing the the continuance of biological life. For example, the women who are pregnant and who are declared brain dead, but the fetus survives and can be um, uh, delivered via cesarean section and can survive and live. Um, So the North American clinicians are saying, well, yes, that person is biologically alive in some sense, but the person or soul is gone right? Because there's no brain function. And Margaret Locke describes that as a legacy of the Cartesian framework of separating mind from body. But in the Egyptian context, if there's any movement or any biological sign of life, then that must be evidence of the lingering of the soul, right? The soul must still be there because the soul is what animates life. So, instead of understanding that, well, actually there were different views of what constitutes the body, what constitutes life. It was just easier to turn to this overly political argument that they in the West are bad or, you know, economically exploitative or lying about brain pain. And to use the kind of um, the, the, the furor outrage that people feel over warfare and to, to kind of, you know, burn that fuel and to say this is the explanatory framework for why we should stand against these particular medical procedures.
1: That's great. Thank you. Um, now, sort so you've just talked a little bit about a chapter where um, you, I think, very wonderfully look at the idea of brain death um, in this local context um, as, as it... Pertains in the Egyptian context that you looked at. But sort of these issues get more, um, get very different and complicated in a different way when you move to looking at a context um, where it's very clear that the body that it, the organ will be procured from is clearly dead, right? And that's cornea transplantation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is a different context, a different set of issues, um, and a, a set of issues that brings us into not um, sort of the, you know, West versus. Islamic values kinds of debates, but really you're looking here um, at sort of discourses on the struggle between enlightenment and backwardness, as you put it, within Uh Egypt itself. Can you talk a little bit about this particular context and um, in in the larger scope of the the book?
0: Yeah, I really liked uh, reading about that, about the the. Egyptian um, Enlightenment—that's what it's called in Egypt, the Nahda—and and and how so? There was a a period where there was a lot of literary work, literary flourishing in Egypt, and um, and some of those figures. I mean, one of the main major figures in Egypt was called Taha Hussein, and he himself was blind, and he came from a very very poor village in Upper Egypt. And in his autobiography, he describes how he was sick, or his eyes um, had trachoma in it. and his mother called the village barber to fix him. And the village barber ended up blinding him permanently. And, you know, had his parents only been enlightened, had they only been educated and known to call a doctor, his life would have been completely different. And so these themes of blindness and awakening and seeing and vision were very strong in this period. And, it, and a lot of it drew on the fact that in Egypt... Trachoma, which is this bacterial infection, um, and if it's left untreated, it could lead to blindness. But it's it's quite easy to prevent and to treat um, today with with antibiotics. Uh, it, it really um, shaped the culture and and idea of the of the orality of um, textual and and. For example, for Quranic recitation, some of the most amazing Quranic reciters were thought to be the blind, that they had special gifts or special gifts for seeing the inward. Um, And so I think that because trachoma was this endemic eye disease in Egypt and and there was a lot of um, the tropes of blindness and seeing and vision were very kind of informative uh, for Egyptian culture, that played into the way that people talked about cornea transplants. And, you know, it it was just a striking um, distinction that every single patient that I spoke to who had cornea opacity thought that a cornea transplant would be a wonderful thing. You know, I'm using something from a dead person that that dead person isn't using anymore. And I can see I, you know, my life will be transformed. And, the the debate was really about very mundane factors like can we actually procure these corneas safely and with consent and with respect for the dead it was it didn't have to go into these you know abstract theological questions that some of the other debates did
1: And in fact, in that chapter, you raise um, an issue that's going to then continue to be important, certainly in the following chapter, which is um, the force and the impact of popular media in shaping discourse about these issues. And so in that chapter in particular, you have this very fascinating discussion about the film, The Lamp of Um Hashim Mm -hmm. in 1968. Would you say a little bit about that and the significance of that for listeners who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, it's really
0: one of my favorite pieces. It's it's an Egyptian novella written by Yahya Haki, and he was uh, an Egyptian diplomat, but he was also one of these um, big cultural figures in the early 20th century. And he, um, he, he wrote this very short novella, but it's so rich, and it's about a young... Um, a young man who grows up in a very poor quarter of Cairo called Sayyidah Zainab. And she, she is Om Hashem. So that's the, another name from her. She's a granddaughter of the prophet. And there's a big um, mosque and shrine for her. And this is the popular poor neighborhood. It's located in the popular poor neighborhood that he's talking about. And that family sacrifices everything for the hopes of this one, the youngest son and the hopes that he'll go Abroad to England and study, and come back and bring them, you know, to success, to modernity. And of course, he becomes an eye doctor. He can brings vision. and And when he finishes his degree, his British professor tells him, "Oh, there's great need for you in Egypt. That's the land of the blind." And so he comes back, and he was told to marry his um, his his cousin, who was, you know, this backward peasant girl who herself is becoming blind because of trachoma and he comes back to England he thinks oh how can I marry her she's just so backward and she's like a peasant girl and I've been romancing with these blonde women in the, in England <laughs> um, but his first shock is to see his own mother treating the eyes of his cousin with the oil of the lamp that lights the shrine of Sayyida Zainab. So this big shrine in the, in the poor neighborhood. And of course the idea is that, you know, the light of the prophet Muhammad through his children, through the lamp that's still lighting her shrine will sometimes will somehow come to this person with with trachoma and, and the doctorate completely infuriates him because he's been biomedically trained and so he says stop it this is ignorance he runs to the mosque he shatters the lamp to pieces the mob attacks him he ends up blinding his cousin with his biomedicine <sighs> So so here Yahya Haki just reversed the story of Taha Hussein, right? Who was blinded by the ignorant way. This guy ends up blinding her with the biomedical way. And then in his remorse, he realizes that the only way to actually move forward is to bring a kind of blend. So this is the harmony of the old and the new, the East and the West, the traditional and the modern. And so he mixes the lamp oil with his medical treatment. she restores her sight. They get married and they have lots of children. That's the novella. That's the that was the actual classical work, and and because there's always been such a large um, portion of Egyptian society that's illiterate, most of Egyptians see or, whatever you want to say consume the classic um, literature through film. In 1968 they made
1: a film of, of it. Egyptian- uh, Shereen, I sorry, I think the is there something covering your microphone? Uh-oh, sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's better. Okay, so, sorry, you were talking about that they made a film of it. Yeah, so in
0: 1968 they made a film of it, which is the way that most Egyptians see or consume uh, classic literary texts, and they completely switched the ending. So instead of feeling remorseful after he shatters the sacred lamp, he, he just he doesn 't feel remorseful at all. he says well uh, you know and and even after he blinds her in the film version, he says well, that 's just because you're hysterically blind and so he just plays a trick on his mother and cousin, and he pretends to give her some lamp oil, but really treats her with a biomedical and and he actually treats her with a cornea transplant, mm-hmm. and that 's what lets her see in the end so the film was almost unable to bring that harmonious narrative and and had to show. That the biomedical, the modern, the surgical, the cutting was the only way forward, and it had to you know ultimately condemn the backward practices of peasants and that unfortunately, I show is what so over um, shadows the debate about cornea transplant is that any discussion of well how are we going to procure them sounds too much like the backward people who are using the lamp oil to anybody, to any doctor. And so all of these you know, legitimate questions about procurement and consent and dignity for the dead were never dealt with.
1: Mm-hmm. And not just film is important in shaping sort of popular or in helping shape popular discourse about this. But you're also showing here um, that television is also really important. And you have this fascinating chapter, Chapter 4, that introduces Muhammad Mutawali Sharawi, um, Mm -hmm. a a sheikh who became uh, widely popular and influential through his television program. Um, This was a super fascinating chapter and such an interesting figure to look at. Can you say a little bit about him and how he's important to the story?
0: Yeah, so Shahrawi was this figure who was actually exiled during Nasser's, when Nasser was president of Egypt. And then he was brought back almost triumphantly, by President Sadat who was trying to kind of boost his legitimacy through um, religious symbols or religious authority. And that was his way to counter the threat of the Nasserist left secularist opponents um, who were opposing his opening to Western economic capitalists. Programs, so Sadat br- brings Shahrawi back, and and he says, "Here you can have your own slot on television." And and back then there were only I think three Egyptian channels, and Shah Raui, um was had, so was on one of those, and, and it was an incredibly popular show because Shahrawi is this uh, kind of jovial. Very simple um, presenting person. He would, you know, always wear his galabeya and this this white cap, and he would sit on the floor, cross legged, and there'd be a circle of of people around him, and he would just talk. And he he actually had, you know, almost this linguistic genius. The way that he spoke, his he would bring these sort of archaic phrases of the Quran and make it completely relevant to everyday life and, and bring it into the colloquial usages of, of Egyptian Arabic. Um, people always remarked about his linguistic skill. It was, it was really, it was truly amazing. Like with one, one word in the Quran, he would open up what people would say would be oceans of meanings. Um, and so he, so that's what he was known for was, uh, basically translating the Quran into everyday colloquial Arabic and making it relevant to everyday life. He was very, very loved, very, very popular guy. He died in 1998, but today you'll still see pictures of him. Even now in the in the Egyptian revolution with the runoff to the election, there are all kinds of posters of Shahrawi's face imagining what he would say, how he would weigh in on Egypt's first election. There's bumper stickers. Wow. He's a very, very, very important figure in contemporary Egypt, and uh, he was one of the first people who was known, sort of on air, kind of caught off guard. Um, Somebody had asked him the question about organ transplant, and he said, oh, but, you know, your body belongs to God. And the chapters really are, you know, the book kind of takes that phrase and says, well, what does that mean? And why do people keep coming back to it? I mean, what does Sha'arawi have to do with any of this? And it shows how that was just a, a phrase that that people used and meant very, very different things with it. And, and they would use it in different contexts. And the reason they were referencing Sha'arawi, it wasn't because of the reasons people feared. It wasn't because they were kind of blindly following this anti-modern guy. It was because he had touched on something. He had touched on people's sort of feeling let down and disappointed by all of these promises that biomedicine would solve all these problems. Well, biomedical delivery didn't solve a lot of problems. Biomedical access was always very shoddy and very uneven. And so this idea that, you know, some miraculous gift of life was going to restore people to health, it, it just didn't ring true. And to think you know, in these divine terms that, well, there will be justice in the end, there'll be mercy in the end, that God will reward you for all the suffering where there, there isn't a, a happy ending for you was um, was comforting for a lot of people. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you. And he's, That was just a particularly fascinating chapter for me. And another really particularly fascinating and really moving chapter um, was Chapter 6, in which you're talking here about the weighing of different kinds of risk that individual patients um, would go through in order to make decisions about, in particular here, I think kidney transplantation. Mm-hmm. Now, the different kinds of risk that you talk about here um, include physical and environmental. And it's what's really striking or one of the really striking things is the repeated discourse of environmental toxins that gets brought up mm-hmm. um, as part of this um, set of concerns. You're talking about risks of medical mistreatment, financial risks, spiritual risks, social risks, um, one of It's an extraordinarily rich chapter, and one of the really moving things about this is that it takes us as readers through the intricacies um, that individuals go through when weighing these all of these different types of risks, sometimes at the same time, to make decisions about transplantation. Um, to sort of bring us perhaps to, as we move toward the conclusion of our discussion today, can you talk a little bit about um, were any of these cases particularly moving for you, I mean, I, I know all of them were offshore moving in some way, but are there any cases that really stick out um, for you as being particularly transformative in the way um, you thought about these issues and you thought about these processes well i 'm
0: thinking now about you know how how much I learned from the people I spoke with and how it, it, you know the the typical um, Division of labor that we have in the academy is that they're the people who look at the natural sciences and the people look at the social sciences. And so, you know, I'm a social scientist, so I'm supposed to just figure out people's ideas about things, you know, so so I should take it as a universal that it doesn't harm a person to donate a kidney because actually a human being can live perfectly fine with only one kidney or even one fourth of a kidney. And so if people are saying, well, that's not true, that should just be in the realm of ideas and and it's at it was in the process of field work that that division completely shattered to me because it wasn't just their ideas that there was scientific truth to what they were saying. There there were villages where a very disproportionate number of people were falling to kidney failure and it could be attributed to toxins. It could be attributed to the pesticide company that was disposing into their drinking water and and the poor water quality. People knew this on a very um, basic level because they'd lived it. And, and the physicians knew it, and there was no denying it. There was certainly an environmental component to the distribution of kidney failure. And, of course, that would weigh in on somebody's thinking, right? I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to say, well, if we're all drinking this contaminated water, why should I rely on, on my healthy brother? You know, he's the one that's that's good, but eventually he's going to be vulnerable to it too, why should I take his kidney? You know, when I had two kidneys, I got sick. Why would I leave him with one?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and so that's really, I think, it was, it was very, very striking for me because then I had to go and, and find out something about toxicology and to really break that division of academic labor and say, no, no, no wait, this isn't just an idea. The, there's something about that universal assumption about risk that's not so universal, that is contingent on an environment that's not the same everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much, Shereen, And I, we've taken up a lot of your time um, and there's so much in this book that we didn't have a chance to get to. I mean, the book really goes from early to mid-20th century all the way in the epilogue to the 2011 protests in Cairo. So there's a lot of material. It's extraordinarily rich. There's a ton of stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk, t- to talk about today. Is there anything in particular um, that you'd like to mention for listeners who may not yet have had the chance to read the book that you find um, particularly important that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Yeah, I mean, the last thing
0: I want to end on is is the intervention of Islam and what it means to talk about Islamic authority within the confines of the modern nation state. Because that's another sort of big transformative moment to me was to say, oh Wow, Islamic authorities given so little space in the workings of the modern nation state, and it's mm-hmm. backwards from what we're told. You know, we're thought we're made to think that oh, there's always this threat of religious rule or religious um, taking over, but actually, there, there's never in history been so much centralized power as in the modern nation state, mm-hmm. you know, particularly of the twentieth and twenty first century, and so. To think then of of how little space Islamic authority has been given and how, um, what's that, how, uh, I want to say the opposite of rich, how impoverished, right, the, the Islamic discourses have been because of how little space they're given. So, like, oh, you know, one little fatwa is supposed to answer this question that's actually so complicated that doesn't actually make any sense. <laughs> and... Uh, That's what I wanted to end on, is that actually the Islamic tradition has so many different fields to draw on. It, It has so many different perspectives that it considers legitimate, that there's not supposed to be a single answer to questions that impact people in different ways. And that sense of plurality is something that we've lost because of the exigencies of the modern nation state. And it's something that I want people to be aware of, is that... That plurality of of religious opinion and religious voice that is all actually supposed to be legitimate, according to the Islamic tradition itself.
1: And I think that comes out really strongly in the book. So um, that's I think you did a really wonderful job successfully bringing that out in this chapter. It's one of the most fascinating things about the book. Thank you so much. So what's now that, um, well, congratulations, now that this book is out and the project is wrapped up, what's next for you? What's most inspiring to you in terms of your own research right now? Oh,
0: a number of different directions that I want to go in. Um, But right now I'm thinking of a totally different project that will start in Egypt, but take me outside of Egypt Um, and will look at consanguinity, so close cousin marriage. Hmm in different regions of the world and how genetic technologies might be changing that family structure.
1: That's fascinating. And that actually speaks to some really powerful threads of sort of looking at family and kinship relations um, in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Shereen. It's been a total pleasure um, to talk with you. Thank you for being very patient with our um, sort of Uh, small technical difficulties (laughs) along the way it's an amazing book um, and uh, I really had a great time reading it so thank you
0: thank you this has been really fun
1: you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time